talk about and sort of repeatedly tell people the majority of the information you read in the newspaper, see on TV, experience in your life is wrong, is misleading or out of context. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths that people walk in life. And in today's episode, we explore the path of being a data analyst. Uh, But before we get to that, I just wanted to update everyone on the contest, which is finally over. And uh, I just drew the winners last night. So I'm going to go ahead and announce them here to you right now. And I also posted a video of me doing the actual raffle of all of the prizes on the Half Hour Interim Facebook page. If you would like to check that out and make sure that I'm being honest here and actually raffle these away. So the the three winners for the camping gear prize prizes are a fellow listener, Hybrid Korean, which is a super funny name, by the way, and uh, Choose Green is the third one. Uh, just if, if you are one of those people, definitely go check out the Facebook video because I say in that video which prize it is that you won. And then, as I said, there would be a fourth winner based off of the most fun or most creative review. So um, that winner is going to be getting a half-hour intern shirt, and that winner is Marco A. Shatter. And I'm going to go ahead and read this review here because I thought it was so touching and funny and just really awesome. It's just really great. So thank you, Marco. Um, The title of the review is The Stuff of Dreams. Half Hour Intern has become one of the regular podcasts in my rotation. I depend on interesting, clever, and thought-provoking material to entertain my mind while I work. I'm a comic book artist, which is sometimes extremely monotonous work. I'm trying to finish the second book in my graphic novel series and have been chained to the drawing board for 15 to 20-hour shifts, even falling asleep there sometimes. The stories shared on Half Hour Intern help inspire me and renew my dedication to stay on task. Half Hour Intern reminds us that everyday people can accomplish so much with little determination. Time will pass whether you're working towards a goal or not, so why not strive towards something meaningful and leave the world in a better place than when you came into it? This podcast is a breath of fresh air in the podcasting world, letting you delve into the lives of everyday people. The interviewees are not celebrities. Their stories are not sensational, but rather relatable. This makes each podcast something of a treasure. History has always recorded the lives of the powerful and notorious, leaving the common man's experience a thing of mystery. In years to come, people can turn to the half-hour intern's archives to discover what people outside the spectrum of fame and fortune were doing with themselves, not for notoriety or any other extrinsic reward, but to fulfill their own passion. Also, I fell asleep at the computer last night and dreamt that Blake sucked me up into an enchanted shark watch and locked me into a room filled with the clocks and timepieces that were powered not by quartz crystals, but by the souls of his enemies. Bill Murray was there, trapped inside of a Kit Kat clock. We talked about Caddyshack, and it was not simply a comedy, but rather a satirical vehicle for deeper existentialist themes, heavily inspired by the early works of John Paul Sartre. So yeah, on the off chance that Blake has such sinister powers, I thought it would be best that I leave a nice review and uh, a nice review for him and let him know that his efforts are much appreciated. So as I said, that it's obviously, uh, I mean, it's kind of like a no-brainer to pick that review. Uh, it's uh, just so awesome. Thank you so much, Marco. Um, super awesome. So any of the winners, just reach out to me through my website. There's a link to my email in the bottom there. Just send me an email. Um, let me know what your uh, what your address is and all of that, and uh, and we 
will get the prizes out to you. Um, on to today's episode. So in it, I interviewed Dr. John Johnson, who is a statistics expert, a data expert, and he is an expert at analyzing and breaking down data. And I was absolutely thrilled to do this episode because as some of you know, in my prior life, I was a medical device rep. And something that I mentioned in the episode is in medical device, you constantly have to go over studies with physicians and nurses. You're just really, really immersed and versed in medical studies. And this basically made me an incredibly skeptical person (laughs) because everyone has so many studies. Like every company has so many studies. And as we see nowadays on the internet and stuff, like you'll just be surfing the internet and it'll say like, oh, new study shows that, you know, uh, alcohol is good for you. New study shows that two glasses, three glasses of wine a night is good for you. New study shows that two cups of coffee a day are good for you. And it's like every day there's a thousand new studies that come out and a lot of them contradict each other and say all these weird things. So that is a lot of what uh, Dr. Johnson and I talk about is can we make real um, uh, like analysis with data anymore? Are we kind of screwed? Like, are we are we in a world now where we just can't trust our data? Um, and it sounds like that's uh, not really the case. And he'll kind of explain why. And Dr. Johnson just came out with a book called Every Data, which is just an absolutely awesome book that tells all these interesting, incredible stories about data and the way that it impacts our lives and how people are using it um, to try to manipulate facts sometimes and stuff like that and how we can watch out for that. So if you like this interview um, and you like some of the topics that we talk about and it's interesting to you, I would highly recommend picking up uh, Dr. Johnson's book, Every Data. It's out right now. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it anywhere. And uh, it is just an absolutely fantastic and incredibly interesting book that I think is really meaningful for kind of where we're at right now and the number of things coming at us on any given day. So without further ado, here is Data Expert. John, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Ah, great to be here, Blake. Thanks so much. I I say this to a decent number of people, but I don't know that I've ever meant it this much, that I am like absolutely thrilled to have you on the show. I come from a background of medical device sales where we used to have to go over studies all day long. Like that's that's a primary part of your sales role is going over studies with medical studies, obviously, with physicians, with nurses, um, with administration within the hospital. And there are so many studies that I would see um, either, I mean, sometimes even by companies that I work for, but particularly other companies that I would read through the entire study and being somebody that was more or less trained to to read studies, but more importantly, just a very cynical human being. <laughs> I, you, I would just be reading these studies like, you got to be kidding me. Like this doesn't, this uh, maybe is correlation at best, but definitely not causation. Um, and it, it's just, it's always been such an interesting thing to me, uh, trying to interpret data and if we can have good interpretations of data. So I, I, like I said, I'm super thrilled to have you on and to talk about this with an actual expert that really knows what he's talking about. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. And, uh, it's always fun, you know, as I've talked to people about the book since it came out, it is actually really been energizing to see how many people really do care about these things. So um, we're trying to make statistics both useful and fun. And yeah. hopefully that'd be a good goal for today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I feel like it's really the right time for it. How you were saying that people are starting to get into this. I I definitely would attribute that to obviously sure. the internet and social media and everything that's going on there that people are constantly sharing articles that say uh, two glasses of red wine a night are great for you or like coffee, uh, like drink coffee every morning and you'll lower your chance of having a heart attack and stuff like that. 
And uh, I feel like for every person that sees that and is like, oh my gosh, I need to start drinking more coffee, there has to be another person that's like, hmm, that sounds a little strange to me. I just don't know about that. You know, actually, the coffee thing is hilarious because that's an example I use um, in when I give talks. And I actually have articles that say from newspapers, you know, drinking coffee causes cancer. And then the next slide is drinking coffee prevents cancer. Um, my co-author, Mike, and I, when we were writing the book, we probably exchanged, I think we're up to 3,300 text messages since we're not in the same city. we would, And literally, we would find articles on a daily basis as we were sort of culling through all these things to find what were going to be the best examples for the book. And I, I joke with people now that anytime I see in a, a newspaper on the internet, new study says, I, I just, I have to look, which means it take a lot of time. But it's always, almost always, um, a big problem. Like it is amazing how things get translated. And I've tried hard, even when I've given talks at universities, to tell professors and people that are into statistics. I mean, you have to understand it's not just. There's a whole level of whether or not a study makes sense, but then there's a whole level of how that study gets translated to the general public. And uh, you know, this area that I've called statistical literacy, that's really something I've been talking a lot about. I love it. So let's talk about that right now. So and by statistical literacy, I'm sure to a certain extent, you mean um, data analysis versus just like getting the data. So um, would that be correct, I guess, first of all? Yeah, absolutely. So look, in my job as a as an economist and what's called an econometrician, which basically is someone who takes statistics, it's statistics combined with economics. um, Part of it is collecting the data and how do you think about it. But then the part that I really think the book focuses on and the part when I talk about these things about how do everyday people become better consumers of data? That's really sort of the issue. And and you kind of alluded to the fact that with the Internet, with cell phones, with just the constant proliferation of information, we're just bombarded with lots and lots of data. And even what data is, uh, data is not just numbers and Excel spreadsheets. Data is all these articles. Data is everything we read. Data can be pictures. There's just so many different media by which we absorb information. So how do you make sense of that? How do you actually bring a discerning eye to that? And particularly in a world where, you know, people aren't brought up to love math. (laughs) Uh, I think uh, one of the numbers I cited was 13% of all Americans have ever taken a basic statistics class. So in a world where people don't have necessarily formal training and not everybody's kind of a, a math geek like I am, how can you make sense of that in the real world? And a lot of what I talk about with statistical literacy is the notion that even if you don't love math and aren't going to be running derivatives in the back room, you still can have intuition that can really help you to understand and interpret data better. Yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, yeah let's talk about this data interpretation and data analysis and some of, I guess, the pitfalls that we often see with that. So first of all, I guess I would like to know if you feel that there is any way at all, is it even possible for us to have objective data takeaways or are they always going to be subject to bias or incorrectly linking dots and therefore looking at some sort of correlation versus a causation so and let's let's take a look at each one of those to be, it, separately so first let's look at the bias piece and i i, I listened to a uh, a fantasy football podcast do you play fantasy football i used to i 
got frustrated <laughs> every year. <laughs> well, maybe you need to listen to this podcast. So there's a great podcast by ESPN called the Fantasy Focus Podcast. And uh, the the main host of the show on an episode last week, which is just very timely with this interview, he, in the intro, goes over all these statistics. He's, he's basically trying to tell listeners to be skeptical of data that they hear about football players. And he goes over all these statistics on a player from last year. And it's like the most glowing things you've ever heard. And all you hear is the statistics, not the player name and it's like that is a guy that i would draft in the first round sounds amazing then he's like all right now i'm going to go over statistics about another player and he goes over all these statistics also from last year from the player playing last year and it's all terrible it's just like no one should even have that player on their team at all and then at the end he's like all of those statistics were about the same player and he's like so just remember that like you can mold any story you like by grabbing the exact data pieces that you want and telling it in the way that you want so let's let's examine that on the bias side of things. Is it possible to to have objective data takeaways without some bias like that interfering in it? I think it is. Yes. I mean, first of all, the science of statistics, the science of data analysis and sound data analysis does allow us to be more objective. Now, that doesn't mean that people can't manipulate numbers. What you just described to me is sort of a good example of cherry picking. Cherry picking, we talk about a lot in the book, actually, and we have this great example about um, pediatricians. Uh, Four out of five pediatricians prefer uh, Gerber baby food, and we talk about how those numbers sound objective, Um, and they were, you know, they were not falsified, but it turned out that the actual survey actually only had 12% of all of the pediatricians preferred Gerber baby food. So how can it be that you can rectify four out of five, because again, you don't have to be good at math, but 80% is not 12 out of hundred. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what it turned out is when they did the survey, they asked first, well, do, would you recommend baby food once a week? And a whole bunch of pediatricians said no. So they took them out. And then they said of those that recommended baby food, uh, would you recommend a specific brand of baby food? And a whole bunch of them said no, there was no specific brand. And so what you ended up with was of the limited set of pediatricians who recommended a certain brand of baby food and recommended you give baby food to your baby once a week, those people recommended Gerber. That's wow. where the four or five. What a great example. That's so, so good. So that's cherry picking, right? But that, you know, stepping back, data can be objective. Data should be objective. And, you know, just the pure notion of is the data true, right? People aren't necessarily making up numbers. So every statistic you just described about that football player was based on real numbers. Like right? it's not there's not some sense that, oh, passing yards was made up. That's real. The question is the context, right? I talk about and sort of repeatedly tell people the majority of the information you read in the newspaper, see on TV, experience in your life is wrong, is misleading or out of context. Right. The important part of good data intuition is putting things in context. And, and that's sort of where in the example you just gave, I think, um, where people could run astray. Right. If I have the full context on that, I'm not going to make a decision about a given player in isolation without the name and just looking at one set of sticks or the other, I'm going to look at the total package. I'm going to look at the entirety of it. And so to me on the first point, this cherry picking point, yes, this is something we talk about guarding against all the time. People can sort of try to sell you on things with limited sets of numbers. As a good analyst, as a good data person, you want to look at the total picture to figure out whether or not you're giving given the right data to answer the question you care about. 
Okay, so it sounds like on the bias and the cherry picking side, there are solutions to that. And it's basically looking at how much data am I being given right now? Am I being shown the entire picture or just part of the picture? And that will help you kind of solve that problem. Yeah, in part. I also think it's, you know, when I look at uh, data or a statistic, so I'm looking to see how qualified is it, right? Are there those little sort of footnotes? Are there the things, you know, it, even in the, the Gerber example, there were things that said that, you know, it was out of pediatricians who recommended baby food at least once a week. You know, th- those things were qualified. So I do think that's sort of a good anecdote to the notion of that, realizing that numbers in isolation can be misleading. They aren't, aren't always, but that's something you can be flagged or you can look for um, and just be aware of. Okay, interesting. So now let's go over um, incorrectly linking dots and correlation versus causation and if there's kind of any way to get around this. So I before mentioned the, the you know, coffee is better for your heart health or alcohol is good for you is one that everyone loves sharing around because it's like, hell yeah, I love alcohol, so this is great for me. <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned, even if that was the most well-done study ever. Even if they, that was somehow done in perfect isolation with a control group and a bunch of people that drink alcohol on a regular basis, and this is exactly how it turned out, to me, that does not say... like A, a more logical explanation for that would be alcohol mellows people out, and people have stressful jobs. And when people come home from their job and they have a drink, they mellow out a little bit. And alcohol is definitely bad for your body. It is poison. But what is even worse for your body than having a drink is carrying chronic stress. So this drink is going to, I guess, be the lesser of two evils by helping you deal with some of the chronic stress that you have. Now, had you been someone that meditated, exercised, did all these things to deal with your stress and you did not drink alcohol, I would have to assume that that would be the healthiest and best group out of the bunch. It's not simply alcohol is actually making you a healthier person. So how do we avoid things like that when this study just says something like, hey, alcohol is good for you? All right. So correlation versus causation is another huge pet peeve. (laughs) Um, It's one of the things that sort of drives me crazy when I read things in the newspaper and the like. So you're on the right track with all these things. Let's start with sort of some of my favorite examples, and we'll loop back to the alcohol in a second. Um, One of my favorite examples is the notion that living close to a Starbucks will um, increase your house's value. And that's a real headline. And, you know, it sounds interesting. I wrote most of the book in a Starbucks, and I live close to Starbucks, so that's great. I'm like, wow, my house is going to be worth more. <laughs> yeah. um, but what if it's the case that Starbucks actually strategically places their stores in wealthier neighborhoods? You know, it's going to cost me five bucks for a latte. I better put it in a place where people can afford to come buy it, right? Yeah. There's a great example of sort of the causation being reversed. So first of all, you know, before we even get to the studies and the level you're talking about, just the notion that people see headlines and that they step back and say, okay, is there something that's implying causality here and what does it mean and is it really causal? In economics and statistics, causation, in medical studies, causation is a very, very high bar to get over. Um, however, as human beings, and we actually interviewed some folks in our book, um, like some psychologist types, um, people love to look for patterns in their everyday life. And so you've got to be kind of careful about it. There's sort of this human tendency to do that. All right. So now let's step back to the study about alcohol. Um, 
there's a few different ways that people try to isolate causality in statistics and economics. And the sort of most popular in vogue is actually a randomized experiment. Now you might say, well, wait a second, we're dealing with a social phenomenon. How do you sort of do randomized trials? Well, they actually are doing some randomized trials, experimental type economics with people where they'll sort of have a treatment and a control group and perfect randomization. Then there's another sort of types of things called natural experiments, which are sort of policy interventions or things where they're as good as random, right? So there's this entire sort of branch of economics focused on causation and causality. In your alcohol example, if you had a study where you could really and truly have random assignment, where you could actually have, here's a group of people that drink, here's the people that don't, they would be identical in all other aspects, which means whether they mediate, uh, mediate, <laughs> that's not, let's not settle disputes, whether they <laughs> meditate, whether they, you know, exercise more, then you could isolate the causal effect. And we rarely have that. So then what do we rely on? Well, what we rely on is a series of different types of studies, a series of different takes on it to sort of see how well can we do? Do we see a consistent pattern in the data? Questions that are worth asking are often hard to isolate. And I kind of always joke about this. Back when I was a professor, which is now almost like 15, 20 years ago, my dissertation was on whether long work hours cause divorce, which I thought was really interesting for an economist, like a PhD economist, to sort of deal with that issue. And it was fascinating. Um, but the causality issue was incredibly thorny, right? Because you can imagine if you are in a bad marriage, you might want to avoid being at home. And if that's the case, you might work more hours. So is it the higher hours I could see in the data, a function of the fact that you were in a bad marriage and going to get divorced? Or was it a function of because you're working so many hours, you're ignoring your home and that causes divorce, right? Ah, yeah, and very so I always joke there's this sort of reverse causality. That was paper that I had a really hard time getting that paper published, even though everybody thought it was fascinating because I couldn't perfectly answer the question. I had another paper on the effects of overtime legislation on public sector labor markets in Texas, which, you know, like three people in the world care about. And that got published in like one of the best journals because I kind of could nail the causality perfectly because the question was so narrow. The point of all this is not to recount my short-lived academic career, but sometimes the really weighty questions we care about, we're going to have a hard time getting to causality, but we still want to know what we can. And sometimes the questions we can nail the causality perfectly are things we may not care a heck of a lot about. So there's kind of this trade-off you have to make. I kind of weigh, lean on the side of, well, let's do the best we can with the hard questions, and we're going to have to sort of connect the dots. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now let's delve a little bit into, which is a little bit of the correlation causation thing, but a more specific example of it, which would be the placebo effect, which is now really screwing up the entire pharmaceutical industry <laughs> because placebos are doing better than ever. And if you just buy yourself a bottle of placebos, you can cure pretty much anything. And I would see this as well in the medical device industry. Um, one of my jobs was in the wound care space. And the thing that always made me um, very cynical about any sort of studies in the wound care space, and if you were to talk to any sort of physician or nurse that ever treated wounds, they would definitely share the same sentiment, is that 90% of the patient's healing is going to be on the patient. It does not matter what you do for them. It does not matter what products you're using, anything like that. Because if the doctor says to the patient, I need you to elevate your leg due to blood flow. I need you to get up and walk around six times per day. And I need you to stop smoking your cigarettes. 
if the patient does all of the things that the doctor said, that patient's going to heal up. And I would say 80, like very sadly, it's very frustrating. I'd say about 80% of the time plus when you would see the patient and the doctor would ask them, did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? The patient was not doing the vast majority of the things that the doctor was asking for them. Now, when we're trying to do studies on these products, you tell that patient, hey, we're giving you this cutting edge, super cool new product. We're going to go ahead and put this on your wound. It's going to help you heal up. And then the doctor comes to them and gives them this list of things that they want them to do. Get up, walk around, stop smoking your cigarettes. In my estimation, that patient group is going to be much more likely to follow the doctor's instructions because they've also just been told, hey, we just used this cutting edge multi-thousand dollar product on you. Isn't this awesome? Um, there's something of a, all right, well, then I, if you guys are doing that for me, then I want to do the right thing. And I, I'm going to you know, see this thing through to the end and do all these things that the doctor is asking me to do. Um, is that an issue that you talk about at all in your book? And is it an issue that, that you see, I guess, parallels to in other areas of, let's say, economics or something like that? Well, it is interesting. I mean, it's in some respects, it's right back to the causation issue, right? What you described is the fact that it's not the medical device that's actually causing the difference. It's the combination of the medical device and several other actions that are also being taken at the same time. And so really, there's a bit of a failure of measurement, right? Because in that analysis, when you're measuring the placebo group versus the treatment group, you're not capturing the totality of the effects, right? On average, your treatment effect there is better. But the problem is it's not necessarily caused by the device. It's caused by the device and all the other behaviors that the other group isn't doing. Right. So it really is the same side of that causality issue. You know, it's funny with the context where I've actually been thinking a lot about something. I think it's similar is, you know, in looking at some of the recent polls, there's been a lot of information about now the addition of third party candidates in the presidential election polls. And you sort of see um, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump head to head. And then you see what happens if you had Gary Johnson and Jill Stein. And all of a sudden you see these candidates sort of pop up where you see the, the race narrowing and you see these independent candidates when they're listed by name, their numbers go up. There's actually some interesting studies that suggest the addition of third party candidates in polling, they will way outperform in the polls what people will actually do when they go and vote. They generally will sort of gravitate back towards one of the two major parties. Mm, that's so, interesting because they're right. asked a question and they want to say, hey, I support this person. But when they actually right. get to the polls, they're like, although I support that person, they're probably not going to win. So I'm just going to vote for this other person. Exactly. And so that's why it's sort of fascinating. There's a lot of debate in the polling field about, well, should you just look at the head to head because that's what's going to actually matter or when you list these things by name. And so when you were describing that, that's sort of what I was thinking a lot about is sort of this same thing where there's something else going on where sort of. The increase in recognition creates things. And, and, you know, in economics, a lot of this sort of relates to the, the field of behavioral economics, where it's not just, you know, historically, right, that in economics, the, the basic paradigm is rationality. People are rational actors. But behavioral economics is about, well, what are the responses people actually have and what happens when we don't behave rationally or what happens just because of certain inherent psychological biases people have. And so sort of this notion of increased awareness drives behavior, but it may not actually represent what you think it is. You know, so what I what I don't say is statistics is easy. It's not easy to disentangle all these things. But just the kind of awareness that we just described is actually pretty important. And I do think people are pretty capable of thinking about those types of issues. So that's a lot of, you know, I said, when I go out with the book and try to talk to broad sets of audiences, I try to kind of convey that so much of being a good statistician, I think, is not necessarily purely the math, which are, that's a part of it, 
But it's really the the thoughtfulness of the analysis to make sure that you are not over-attributing things or under-attributing things, that you're actually being thoughtful about what you know and what you don't, and you can tell the difference. Right, absolutely. Well, man, and that example that you give um, with the independent political candidates is quite possibly the most perfect example of a difficult thing for a consumer to analyze themselves. Because some of these other examples that we've been given... um, like the, like what I mentioned with yeah. uh, wound care products, like that seems kind of logical to me. Obviously, when you see a headline that says alcohol is really good for you, uh, you should <laughs> probably be a little bit scared. I mean, that just sounds right. kind of weird. That being said, when you are told, hey, Gary Johnson is polling at 12% of the vote, you're just all of a sudden thinking like, wow, he's getting 12% of the vote. You know, not like the, oh, he's polling at 12%. People might back out at the end. That is a very difficult leap, I feel like, for the average person to make. So I guess let's let's go ahead and parlay this into like, how do we prevent ourselves from being susceptible to these sorts of things? What can we do to better break down and interpret data? Well, the first thing I would say is one of the ways that I – people learn in different ways. And, and uh, fundamentally, I think I am a teacher at heart even though I wasn't at the university for very long. But I, I do like to teach. And so the way I sort of try to make people come up with statistics is lots of different types of examples. Because what I find is if you remember the example of, wow, you know, that, that article in the book about whether grilled cheese improves your sex life was a good illustration of, you know, um, bad data – uh, that that's kind of helpful or you know because you obviously have, a grilled cheese improves your sex life uh, obviously especially when you survey people on an online dating site about both their sex how frequently they have sex and how much they like grilled cheese <laughs> um, but so the point we actually tried to get the publisher to name the book grilled cheese sex because the book actually as it turned out was released on national grilled cheese day but they just didn't <laughs> they wouldn't I thought, go it, I thought it would have sold a lot more copies yeah for knows. sure so um so first of all i would say is heightened awareness just sort of not taking everything at face value, thinking a little bit harder is sort of one thing. There's a couple of kind of key points I always point to in the book. We talked a little bit about cherry picking, which is one sort of common thing. And we talked about causality versus correlation, which I think is really huge. The other thing I always try to hammer when you say sort of what are three big concepts would be averaging. We see averages all the time. It's probably the most ubiquitous statistic there is. And people are familiar with it because they, you know, think about it. If nothing else, school, oh, my average on an exa- on, in that English class, you know, they added all my grades together or my average in math or my grade point average. So at least people are kind of familiar with that. But even averages can be incredibly, incredibly misleading. Uh, the average mayor in the United States makes $62,000 a year. The average deputy mayor makes $83,000 a year. Well, how does that make any sense? A deputy mayor works for the mayor. Well, the problem is, what are we averaging over? Basically, every city in the U.S. has a mayor, even like little tiny cities that, you know, pay $10,000 a year. But only the largest cities have deputy mayors, (laughs) right? So New York has four deputy mayors. They make $200,000 a year. The average over all the deputy mayors is much higher because it's a much larger set of cities. What's the point of all this? When you see things like an average, when you see something like new study says, when you see a number... The ability to step back and try to put it in context, what data is being used? What position is this person trying to tell me? Are there obvious questions that sort of should come to the surface when I look at it? You know, these are not hard skills. They require a little bit of discipline. But just I have found generally a little bit more of awareness really goes far in terms of being a better consumer of the massive number of statistics 
we're confronted with every day. Interesting. And so it sounds like if you are being given a number that's trying to be representative of a whole population of people, you really need to look into, should I right now be given the average or the median? Because one of these is going to be much more appropriate in this situation. Right. And it it could be sometimes the average is the right thing to do, but you need to at least understand what is hidden underneath the average. There's significant variation under that average. So that's the sort of big picture point there. You see this again, I mean, uh, partly because I've been asked a lot of questions about polling during the election year, but you will see reporters all the time talk about, oh, new poll came out today. Now, everybody has heard of the margin of error, the notion that you know, when you present two numbers, there's some amount of statistical uncertainty in those numbers. And so, you know, it's not precisely measured. But yet many times now you'll see numbers printed in a poll and you'll see people say, oh, well, it's 4238. And you have no idea what the margin of error is. But that could be 4238. And we're very confident that those numbers are right. Or it could be 4238. And we have no confidence that the race isn't a tie. (laughs) So, There's lots of things like this where people present numbers, and oftentimes people know enough to be dangerous, right? You'll hear – I've heard reporters say, oh, well, we have this self-reported survey, and although it's not representative, you know, there's still information to be gleaned. Well, well, let's back up a second here. You you said it's not representative. So the information I can glean is that the people that responded to your survey online at 10 at night support someone by, you know – this much, that doesn't tell me anything about the broader population. So there's all these types of things that go on where always asking yourself, what are they measuring? Who are the people that are responding? What is what is the story that's trying to be told? How tortured do the numbers seem? Those are the kinds of things that just sort of, I call them raising flags for my own analysis that sort of help people to sort of make more sense of numbers. Yeah. So this wasn't even something I plan on talking about, but hearing you say all that makes me think that we definitely should talk about this. Please go over the concept of a p-value for those that don't know about it and what we should be looking for if we are being told some interesting facts and figures that that might not sound quite right to us. Okay. So when we when we think about statistics and we think about sort of, you know, doing different <laughs> concepts, we often think about sort of what's called hypothesis testing. The notion is that we're trying to determine at, at a very high level whether when we look at the data, can we determine that something actually appears to be a true statistical effect? In other words, we're finding a pattern in the data that is true, or is it just due to random chance? That's at the highest possible level. So we hear things like 95% confidence interval or p-value of 0.05. For historical reasons, actually, and there's a bit of a debate in the field, 95% is the confidence level that is generally accepted in scientific studies as the basis for whether something is considered statistically significant or not. So when you look at data or numbers or statistics, uh, you often see these p-values or these t-statistics, and there's sort of this this threshold above which we say something is a statistically significant effect and below which we say is due to random chance. Now, the problem is that historically, because that's the cutoff for whether something gets published in a journal or not, that's the cutoff for whether somebody says it's a real effect or it's noisy, is people have repeatedly gone and run numbers over and over till they find statistically significant effects. And that's sort of, you know, this... um, Sometimes people call it pea hunting or, you know, and so it's actually become quite a big debate about how do you do statistics and science. But the basic idea is I can't about, believe even this is an issue. That's crazy. It is, believe it or not. So 
So, but that's the basic idea is obviously just like measuring anything. We want to know whether what we're seeing in the data is due to chance or we think it's real. Right. And so and just to, uh, I guess, clarify or make that like 100% uh, concrete, what he's trying to say is that if you have a p-value of 0.05 or if you have a 95% confidence interval, that means that nine, if you were to do that exact same experiment 100 more times, 95 times, you will get the exact same result that you're saying you got the first time. Yeah, um, I mean, it's sort of, right. I mean, the way you could put it is that if you were to... You've got some underlying value in the data, what we call the population value. Let's say the population mean. And if I repeated that 100 times, 95 out of 100 times, my confidence interval would include that actual true value. In five times, it wouldn't, roughly. That's what the 95 confidence means, right? It's literally from this repeating. So the idea is that we unfortunately don't know which five times it's not. But if we can find something where we think we're kind of can measure it somewhat precisely, that gives us more confidence in the results. I mean, the way I try to think about it is just imagine it's, a, it's like having a ruler that can really calibrate. And if you're if you've got really narrow confidence intervals, it means I'm pretty confident I've got the real value. Like I've got a good measure statistically. That's sort of the way I try to think about it. But hopefully that's helpful to your listeners. Yeah, it's interesting because then you give those examples of just polling some people at 10 o'clock at night on a website and then saying, oh, polls are showing this. If you were to run those polls through an actual <laughs> thing, well, like what the hell would the p-value even look like on that? Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the p-values in part are going to be driven by the number of people you interview, but there's, there's sort of just purely due to random chance. Then there's all these other issues we've layered on top of it, which includes, well, is it representative? Does it, what does it mean? Um, there's a whole bunch of differences there. So, look, what I don't promise people is that statistics is always going to be simple. And I'm not pretending that everybody is going to be able to spot every single thing. But I do think there's a lawful long way from being completely misled to being, you know, Nobel Prize winning statistician. And I think we can sort of move the bar in a way that helps people just think about these issues a little more clearly. So you do, other than questioning everything, um, which is, I mean, great advice for statistics, great advice for absolutely everything in life, as far as I'm concerned. Other than questioning everything, um, do you think, I guess, yeah, to get back to the original question, do you think, because every example that we've, get, uh, that we've given only compounds the problem. It doesn't solve it at all. So do you think that there is any way that when we are analyzing data that we can analyze it properly and we ourselves can have confidence in what we're doing i guess here's how i would put it first know what data you're analyzing know what the source is understand what the data represents second is it the case that the data you are looking at is appropriate to answer the question you care about and third think about what you can meaningfully learn from the data and what the potential limitations are if you follow those sort of three broad principles, that actually takes you pretty far. Wow. I didn't say it's easy, but those three principles will take you very far in terms of data analysis. Yeah, those are great, great pieces of advice. Um, all right, let's talk about what what you feel is kind of the best way to spot poor data. So you've already given us advice for ways that we can break down data and become better consumers of it. If we just have all kinds of studies flying at us, what are just some like red flags right away that could go off to be like, yeah, I question you? 
Uh, I always joke when I see the phrase new study says in most publications, I cringe. Um, but that's a little cynical. Uh, look, things that either sound way oversimplified, things that are based on small sample sizes, things that are unqualified statements. When I see people say things that are very definitive, I look a lot deeper because the reality is the real world is pretty nuanced. And that doesn't mean that there aren't important contributions to be made, but we usually, if someone's overstating the results, if someone's overstating the statistics, it's usually to me a sign, well, something's not quite right there. Yeah. So I think that's a really good way. You know, look, as I said, nuance is sometimes difficult to capture in, you know, it's really difficult to capture in a tweet, uh, difficult to capture in a 200-word story on an internet news site, uh, difficult to capture in a newspaper, but the real world is nuanced. So if you want to be careful, you got to think about things. And that's um, that's what I think you look for. But when I see things that are outrageous, that are different, I immediately cringe. Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about you. I would love to know what exactly a like quote unquote data expert does. Like, I know you get hired as a consultant a lot, and you have your own mm-hmm. consulting company and stuff. What do people hire you for? Like, what are you supposed to do in terms of helping people with their data? Okay, so I have kind of a specific niche. Um, You know, my PhD is in economics, as I think I mentioned, with a specialization in this field called econometrics, which is is data applied. I actually work quite frequently as an expert witness. So in my firm, what happens is I get hired in cases usually where there are large um, scale data sets where I'm asked to come in and analyze and look at the data and make sense of it. So one of the examples I always give is I did a case involving chocolate candy bars where I had data on every candy bar sold in the U.S. for a 10-year period. And I had to analyze all that data. I had to learn all about the chocolate industry um, and then look at certain allegations in that case involving some antitrust issues where I had to look at the data and try to figure out um, what I could see in the data, what it meant, a whole bunch of statistical modeling. How did I take the economics of the industry and match it up with the data? Things like that. So in my daily life, what happens is I get hired to look at different industries, different companies that have different issues, and I usually get access to very detailed data from those companies, have to understand, learn everything about the data, and then apply my economics and everything I learn about an industry to the data to develop models of whether it's pricing or other types of you know wages, um, demand for products, whatever the case may be. You know, Different things get studied in different contexts and try to make sense of them. Oh, that's interesting. That's got to be really fun. Uh, like not, <laughs> which is funny. I'm sure when you tell people you're into statistics, a lot of times, like you said, you know, people have an aversion to math. But of all things to do in statistics, being an expert witness, I feel like has got to open lots of different daily doors and cause you to put on a lot of different hats and learn about a lot of different fields that you otherwise would not be learning about. Absolutely. I mean, the diversity of things I get to work on is fascinating. Um, At the same time, doing really good statistical work as an expert witness, um, you'd be surprised how much bad statistics I have to debunk. Um, A lot of my job is to sort of, you know, be the proponent of good science and explain when people aren't using the data properly or trying to make arguments that aren't supported by the data. So it's still... It's very vigorous, uh, very rigorous. It's actually very vigorous, too. Um, It's high stakes often. And it's, you know, one of the differences between when I was a professor and this is when I 
work on analyses in this job, people really, really care about what I find. I have an audience for sure because yeah. oftentimes there's an awful lot at stake. Um, it is really nice to work on these questions and have practical work where I have to explain these things. And, you know, the book itself came out of the fact that I've spent so much of the last 15 years explaining statistics to lawyers, to juries, to judges um, that I thought it would be great if I could bring it to a broad audience, broader audience because it is the same kind of skill. How I have to know that my analysis is ironclad and perfect, but then I have to take it and I have to simplify it in a way that makes sense to sort of smart people, but people that don't necessarily love data. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something, I, I mean, yeah, what a great time for your book. It's something that we all really need. Um, obviously, as we talked about earlier, it's like more and more studies are flying at us like on a daily basis now. And you can kind of go in one of two directions with that, like going forward into the future. One is to just have everyone start start ignoring everything, you know, just not trusting everything. And that's no better than trusting everything, you know? So, um, yeah, I think it's actually really dangerous. I mean, facts and numbers still have to matter. Um, that's how we can actually be objective and sort of advance the ball on science as a society and the like. So in my opinion, you know, the option of ignoring everything is a terrible route. That's worse than anything we can do. What I think we really want to do is sort of be discerning and figure out how we can actually look at things with a more critical eye. I think that's a far more productive avenue and actually is going to end up with better, um, better outcomes all around. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about one of these other consulting jobs that you did. Um, if you're able to talk about it, that is. Um, we right now are speaking just before the start of the 2016 NFL season here in the United States. Um, and this will probably be airing shortly after the NFL season has started. I know you did some help with NFL player safety analysis. Are you able to talk about that at all? Yeah, I actually can. That's um, that's a public project, so I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, so that project was interesting. We um, one of our very first clients as a firm was the NFL Players Association, and they had hired. Oh, that was us. one of my first questions: was who hired you, the Players so Association or the NFL? Uh, the NFL Players Association hired us, and we helped them with a series of issues involving the lockout. And one of them was about: could you do anything with the numbers and the data to quantify and look at injuries? And so what we were able to do is collect the data on injuries by week, week by week over several seasons and sort of look for patterns in the data of when injuries occurred, what, you know, ultimately trying to quantify what the cost of every additional game was. Part of when our work was coming out is when there was a discussion about extending the season to 18 games. But so we actually did econometric models, statistical models of when people were injured, what was the most likely time to be injured, what the, how each additional game added to the number of injuries. And unfortunately or fortunately, we're actually, our study was responsible for the kickoff being moved back. As we found, one of the things we found is that um, the play where the most injuries occurred was when the ball was being kicked off. And imagine, it makes so much sense. Yeah. Post, both parties running at each other full speed, head-on collisions, that's when most injuries were the most injuries were occurring. So we did a whole series of work like that, including those kind of insights and then some different things on what the potential extra harm would be to an injury to a career. How much would a career be shortened if you added two games, things like that um, at the time. So it was a really interesting project. And um, we still work with the NFLPA on different things at different times. But that was actually kind of a, a, a very interesting application of statistics and data 
in a way that I think made a real difference. Yeah, what an I mean, it definitely did. What an incredible thing for you to be a part of. I, I didn't realize that those were all the things that you were studying. It, literally every single thing that you just mentioned, I already knew because of. I mean, I'm a big NFL fan, so just you know, hearing those things on ESPN, you're hearing them on a sports podcast. Um, I've heard every one of those stats you mentioned reiterated multiple times, and obviously, I know that the kickoff got moved and stuff like that. What a what a great thing to be a part of. It was great. And it is kind of when I talked about sort of real world practical things, um, that's why I enjoy my job so much. I get to do so many neat things. um, And our work with the NFLPA has been one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's start to wind this thing down a little bit, John. What does the future of data and data analysis look like as far as you're concerned? Uh, Well, first, we're going to keep having more and more data. It's not going to get less. It's not going to go away. I think people are becoming better equipped to deal with it, I hope. Um, I think the techniques, the statistical techniques, the computing power, the new sort of data science techniques are really exciting and kind of neat. Um, I'm not, I don't think I'm that old, but I still find every time, you know, I hire new PhDs who come in and learning about new techniques from them over time is kind of exciting to see sort of how the fields are evolving. Uh, It's an exciting time to work in the space because there's a lot of potential And the most important thing is it can continue to unlock answers to questions that we probably never could have answered before. That said, with that comes great responsibility. The potential for abuse continues to be there, so it's important to be vigilant and smart about it. But I think on net, um, more data is probably better for us. And ultimately, if we can continue to find ways to make sense of it, use it effectively, use it smartly and honestly – I think there's a ton of potential for us to continue to, uh, as a society, basically, for a whole host of different things. Absolutely, man. Love that. So obviously a great start for people to, uh, well, listening to this episode is a great start for a lot of people to become better consumers of data. Getting your book, Every Data, would be another great step. I am so excited to read that book myself. Every review that I read on your book, by the way, is phenomenal like people are are just falling uh, like head over heels for your book like they just absolutely love it so i'm uh really excited to read it what do you think if it's something that we haven't covered thus far um like what is kind of the key takeaway that you hope that people will get after reading your book Uh, the single biggest thing that i hope people get is well two things it's not not single so it's two one is i hope they find it empowering you know i don't I don't paint a pessimistic picture of this, although, yes, it's about hidden misinformation in your everyday life. That's not meant to – it doesn't mean that I think everybody should just be cynical about the power of data. What I actually hope it is is empowering about both how to think about it, that people can actually understand and use data effectively. And again, you don't have to be a a statistics whiz to make sense of the data around us. And so, so much of the effort in the book – that my co-author Mike and I made was to try to get real world examples that make it very down to earth. Uh, I'm proud to say I don't think it reads like a statistics book at all. Um, I think it reads like a book that just it kind of moves quickly. It's a little bit like me, kind of frenetic, but um, it's a fun read and um, I'm very proud of it. And thank you for the nice words. It's kind of the reviews have been fun to see come in. I bet. That's so great, man. Well, yeah, congratulations. And like I said, I can't wait to read it. Um, John, thank you so much for coming on the show and all the info for us. This was such a good learning experience. We appreciate it. Uh, Thank you, Blake. My pleasure. 
Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you told a friend about it to help spread the word about the show. And if you've been listening to the show for a little while and been enjoying yourself, I would really appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. That's a way that a lot of people learn about new podcasts. And the more reviews and the better reviews that a podcast gets, the more people that that podcast ends up in front of. So that would be a really awesome way to help the show. And if you're sitting there and thinking to yourself, yeah, that's all fine and good, Blake, but... uh what are you going to do to help me out? Well, how about being a guest on Half Hour Intern? That is right. You could totally be a guest on this show. So if you have been sitting there listening to this show and thinking to yourself, you know what? I do this totally awesome thing for a living. Or you know what? I have this awesome hobby that I'm really, really passionate about and I would love to tell people about it. Go to halfhourintern.com and click on the Submit Your Ideas link at the top of the page. And through there, there will be forms that you can fill out to get in touch with me about the possibility of coming on the show and being a guest yourself on the Half Hour Intern Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening.